It's the Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. We're in season two, covering the top 100 albums of the 1970s. And now your hosts, John, Josh, and Matt. All right, it is the final episode of season two covering the 1970s of the Combing Stacks Music Podcast. We made it. We made it. It's It's been a long and winding road, uh, to quote the Beatles. And uh, I can't think of two people that I would enjoy walking that road with more than my partners in crime on the podcast, Josh and Matt. I'm going to take a back seat for one of the few times in my life and just let them swim your right in to the deep end bask so josh glory bask in your glory so josh ba- like let me bask away go ahead and tell me how you're feeling about this final episode of season two very very excited it's so as it's my favorite episode because we do a top 10 list and i feel like we've accomplished so much in the time that we covered the decade and i it's truly a a, a sequence of events where i have gained so much more knowledge than when we started it's broadened my horizons is what i'm trying to say all right uh, i appreciate it appreciate you this that was pretty deep josh and and profound i think right Mm. there matt i am the jim morrison of this podcast you are the jim morrison (laughs) of this podcast and now the david crosby of the podcast we were discussing (laughs) matt over there matt drop your proof i like how quiet matt's been he's just sitting on something over there i feel like yeah matt how are you Hi, I'm doing well. Um, I'm just a little upset that we're not covering more Eagles and James Taylor. I'm sad that that's that's not happening. Oh, there will be a top ten list for that, guys, or maybe a top five in terms of <laughs> top five like albums we 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 wish to cover, but actually not really. In reality. Like the opposite yeah. of potent potables, you know, <laughs> yes. whatever that. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. Well, we have. We only have two albums to cover this mm-hmm. week, and we're still going to do, even in our last episode, it is not just going to be a recap show. We're going to give you your full money's worth because we are going to cover two albums this week before going into the wrap-up. I think, Josh, it's your turn this week to billboard those albums. Yes, first I'm going to kick things off with Neil Young's Rust Never Sleeps, and then Matt is going to close out the decade music-wise with Joy Division's Un- unknown pleasures, <laughs> which apparently, <laughs> which apparently, Josh's unknown album that he just listened to several times this well, week. Geez. Also, Josh, I'm going to clean your stack. It's Neil Young and Crazy Horse, not oh, just Neil true. Young. Okay. So the Crazy Horse is what, with the Neil Young. Let's start Josh's, Josh's, <laughs> Josh is Josh is Josh is so excited. I was about to say Josh is so excited about the last episode. He's losing his fame detail orientation, and Lord knows that leaves Matt and I to clean up the detail orientation, which. God help us, if that's the case. So, anyway, Josh, Josh's face right now—he just looks like stunned at himself. Like I, I can't believe you I know just what did the that. problem is. I lost the spreadsheet. I have it. I always have it. Oh, you need I a spreadsheet. I'm all improv all the time, Josh. <laughs> yeah. So as a yeah. result, it lends itself to these situations. That is also so. very, uh, also very un Josh, un Josh yeah. of you, Josh, to lose the spreadsheet. I don't know what happened. It's it's uh it's there somewhere in the it's somewhere the, there in the cloud. Um, <laughs> so yeah carrying on we're gonna do that cover joy divisions unknown pleasures and then we will wrap up the decade with our infamous top 10 lists and some other superlatives that we've come up and maybe there's something 
that we'll just throw out there and see what we come up with. Sort of like an essential question, if you will. And, and we could throw ahead. in some listener feedback. Like if did any, if any listeners have any questions, just like send them to us now, and John will keep on the uh, on the Twitter <laughs> in real time. And, on uh, the live Twitter feed time. that no one knows because we're <laughs> not recording. Like I I have like the idea of us doing like a dispatch. And we have been invited to a classic rock dispatch uh, oh. on our Twitter account, which What's I may actually go to. What does that mean? Oh, oh, you boy, mean Discord? Matt. Discord, Discord. Discord. Oh, excuse me. Uh, excuse yes. me. Okay. <laughs> I know that. I was like, "What's dispatch?" I keep I keep up with the modern times by screwing up all of the yes. So <laughs> it's a it's a Discord. I apologize. We are not video game streamers or um, just general commenters. So I will have to see if our format goes i mean we are just really rolling tonight i don't even have the excuse of drinking bourbon over here for this mine is, i know this is what sure. you get with the uh, professional podcast that we are mm -hmm. so yes, i think um i think the fact that josh is going to be leading not one but two segments this week and matt's gonna do the other and i'm not doing any just kind of put me into cruise control where i can be <laughs> like the guy on the radio who just comes in and either does impressions or just goes like hey hey you know, sound effects. that's kind of what, yeah yeah just like the howard stern got like comedian on Baba howard Bowie. stern yeah or what's the what's the one Artie, jackie right jackie the joke man jackie Martling, yeah. back in the day already yeah one of those guys i just sit there and every once in a while i just make a, a candid observation from the Hopefully side not so. already didn't he die i don't know that was guys, not i, I was I got the yeah. spreadsheet back. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I, those, two forever, just, Josh. those two people were waiting on that are real excited right now besides Josh. So score score one for the detail-oriented right there. But, yes. Anyway, it's going to be – Artie Lang is not dead. I'm sorry, no, Artie Lang. He almost died. Maybe. He almost died, yeah. Much like, like many of the times. artists that we've talked about today. <laughs> As, well, and some unfortunately did uh, – did, what is the buy the farm right is that the, the uh, term yeah they bought the farm they bought the farm so uh, well we're not gonna well we're buying the farm on the 70s but we're not buying the farm on the the podcast as far as we could tell and there will be some new and interesting changes as we go into uh season three we're gonna head to the lab a little bit like brian eno or uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> or or this week we're going to put some oblique strategies for sure <laughs> yeah i you know what would be awesome if we actually did in the planning for this, use an oblique. I'm going to see if I can should get... I think we should at least try to do it and report, but that's a great idea, Josh. I think we're going to try that. So file that away. We'll see what the results of our oblique strategies mm. are when uh, when we try it next week. But there's no oblique strategies about cleaning the stacks. It's just straight ahead. <laughs> Classic Kobe the Stacks. So Outcast is going to uh, play us into uh, this segment, and Josh will be on the other end. So I saw this earlier this week, thought it was fitting. Roxy Music is reuniting for a 50th anniversary arena tour mm. with oh. every, everyone except Brian Eno. Oh, so take that Brian. for what it is. But, uh, you know, they haven't toured um, in more than a decade, not including their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in induction. So if you're a Roxy Music fan, check it out. They're going to be Jeff, in super 13 fan cities Jeff. across mm -hmm. the U.S. and U.K. Hey, Josh, do you think that uh, Brian Eno wasn't invited back or did he decline the invitation back? What do you what do you make of that? I bet he declined and said yeah. I've grown beyond that. Yeah. Or he just I just don't get the feeling that he's the type of guy that wants to tour older. Mm -hmm. You know, right. I think he's just a studio junkie kind of. So, yeah, that might be. Yeah, yeah he lo he loves to be surrounded by equipment. I'm imagining. 
I know that feeling. <laughs> so. And then the other thing I had is I just saw this today. Eddie Murphy is going to play George Clinton in a biopic about Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, damn. Um, so he was cast on that. Wow. And uh, basically the life of George Clinton starting in North Carolina in the 40s and going up to, you know, more recent recent times. Yeah. He is still alive. So yeah. it's, a, it's a biopic that's unfinished in one sense. Hmm. Russ never sleeps and funk <laughs> <Yes>. never dies. So <laughs> yep, exactly. I do think that's going to be a pretty fun set, guys. You know why? Why? Because they're just going to be partying all the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hope we cover that. We're going to cover the Eddie Murphy's album. That will not be in either a, a regular episode, a cold list and hot take, a cold list and hot take part two, a cold list and Hot take part seven yeah, you know. takes Manhattan. Yeah, like it's, it's not gonna be in any of them. I don't think hey, on that. Did one. you remember the video for that where Rick James is in the control booth and he is feeling it on that yeah. song? Like that's yeah. it. Like Rick James's body. Do you mean by feeling it you, like incredibly high? Is that what you probably? Meant, well, okay. he, I mean, maybe, maybe not. But he was he was getting in the groove. He was very proud of that track from his reaction in that in that video. I believe at that point he did talk to that one time and i think he said he was on pcp in that video or something like that so wow yeah which that's a drug you don't hear much about anymore like good old-fashioned pcp yeah you we know, should I, bring I, that I, back that... <laughs> I mean, drugs it's still around <laughs> it's just interesting how certain drugs you know lose their lose their you know, street cred or whatever or just in there and like pcp i feel like has had a, a real downturn in terms of its value maybe people are so, like well that's too much <laughs> <laughs> well, like crack is another one. You just don't see a lot of crack around anymore. You know, you kind of have to really dig deep to find your PCP and your crack these days. <laughs> but, so. but cocaine it's all, is a hell of a drug now. Yeah. You know, like snorting aerosols, I feel like, is, has mm-hmm. kind of gone away. Yeah, stuff like that. So A lot of pills. I, from reading that Please Kill Me book, it seems like they did a lot of different types of pills. Well, like pills them. are still around, for sure. Okay. Well, so, I'm yeah, just not, I'm not, not with it. I'm just stuck. Pills are house. very general, though. <laughs> pills can, can take them on many forms, you know. Sure. I guess it's all, uh, you know, pain, pain pills now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's all I had. Let's transition to Matt for this day, our final This Day in History of the 70s. Yeah, well, I guess it's, I mean, I guess it's irrelevant of what decade it's in. Well, I I am doing these, I am trying to cover only things that we've covered, so I'm not like, you know, going over recent things. So That's why only I should do the transitions, assholes, right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, uh, so this one, so um, well, I actually I have ones from yesterday too. So I'll, because I thought we were going to record yesterday, but anyway, March thirty first or March thirtieth, whatever. Uh, Forty uh, in nineteen forty nine, seventy three years ago, RCA Victor introduced the forty five RPM single record, which had mm. been in development since nineteen forty. Um, we haven't really wow. talked a whole lot Our... about like developments of. Uh, oh. what, John, go ahead. You have a question. Is it me or does RCA Victor sound like an MC? <laughs> he was the fourth beastie boy yeah that's what i say it's, it's, yeah. it seems like he Victor. should be in like an 80s like queensbridge like rap group or yeah like the fourth beastie yeah i mean so, yeah. they were around a long time they had the uh famous icon of the uh gramophone with the dog right yeah. listening to the music yeah we haven't really talked about a whole like the the uh the the progression of different ways that people consume music but that i thought that was kind of interesting 73 years ago and the gramophone rotations per minute for all you who don't know yeah there you go josh technology. thank you 45 oh, who sang that song from like the 90s full of ash on the 45 yeah yeah and yeah. stumped in something on the 45. corner shop 
I believe corner that's shop, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. Um, nice, nice pull. Bruno Lavascia uh, on a 45. It's that weird, like, part yeah. British, part Indian accent, like, kind mm-hmm. of, the guys. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So 64 years ago today, um, in 1958, Chuck Berry's rock and roll classic Johnny B. Good was released. When was My Dingaling released? Because that's my know. favorite Chuck that Berry song. That was later, song. I think. Yeah. The My Dingaling mm-hmm. was later. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, that is a good song. When I did agree. Marvin mm-hmm. Berry call him to say <laughs> this? <laughs> <laughs> right, the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance. That's right, Josh. Uh, 58 years ago, we have to do a Beatles thing here, right? Filming for of a Hard Day's Night. Filming for the Hard Day, a Hard Day's Night uh, played a live television performance of the Beatles for the film in front of a studio of screaming fans, including what artist from the 70s that we've covered already? Who was in the audience as a child during the filming was, of Hard Day's Night? Was it Todd Rundgren? It was not Todd, okay. Todd Rundgren. If it was, <laughs> uh, they didn't him. Yeah. Graham Parsons. No. It's Phil okay. Collins. Uh, child really? actor Phil okay. Collins, yes, was in uh, was in was in one of the one of the people in that scene where they were playing in the uh, hmm. the live set there. And uh, I like this one in 1967, 55 years ago, Jimi Hendrix set fire to his guitar live on stage for the first time. Oh yeah! And um, talk about fire! bringing something. Talk <laughs> about bringing something back. More people. I've seen lots of concerts. I've yet to see anybody set a guitar on fire. Well, to- Wyclef Jean tried at Woodstock like '99, I think, mm. to try to do that, and it didn't go so well. So mm. was the first time before the Monterey Pop Festival, Matt? Did it say that? Because I it didn't. Seen um, that it's, on- so it said that this was uh, he was appearing at the Astoria in London. Okay. So- uh, for the first night of a 24 date tour with. The Walker Brothers, Cat Stevens and Engelberg Hunker, Humperdinck. Wow. Ooh, Walker Brothers. We haven't Hard. talked about them in a while. I don't know the Walker Brothers. I Scott like, Walker was one of the yeah. Walker Brothers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Covered. That was Scott not Scott Four. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Way back when. Oh, this is interesting. The Fender Stratocaster burned on stage by Hendrix sold for 280,000 pounds at a 2008 London auction of rock memorabilia. What That's kind of memorabilia of would you guys want? I'm not a big memorabilia fan. None, really. Yeah, yeah unless it was like the Batmobile what, or something. Especially, <laughs> for, especially for something that costs two hundred and eighty thousand yeah. pounds, which is probably like three hundred fifty grand. I mean, um, unless I was at a show or something, then maybe there might be sentimental value. But if I wasn't at a show, yeah. I don't think I need memorabilia. I have yeah. st- I have some stuff like I have like a, a guitar pick that I got at a show once. I have the I have a set list or two. Well, right, but you shows. were at the show. Is exactly. what I'm saying is yeah. like if I as much as I I love history and I love doing this podcast, it's like I don't know if I just need a random you know yeah, set list from a '67 show that I don't was need decades before wardrobe board. or something. Yeah, unless you're going to wear it yourself. And then yeah. be stu- Josh just becomes Starman or the Thin White Duke in his fastest stage. So, Which is what we call Wednesday for Josh. <laughs> uh, I never heard this story. In 1995, 27 years ago, Jimmy Page escaped being knifed when a fan rushed the stage at a Page and Plant gig in Auburn Hills, Michigan. John, is that near anywhere near Michigan State? Was that you, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is not super near Michigan State. It's more near Detroit than it is okay. Uh, okay. where East Lansing is. But, yeah, yeah. No, that was not me okay. charging the stage, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this was from yesterday, but I did want to mention this. Two years ago, 2020, Bill Withers passed away, mm. um, which is very, very sad. Still I, Bill but, in my heart, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bill Withers. He's awesome. And a couple of birthdays. Uh, per John's request, I am not going to say happy birthday to somebody who's dead. Yes, that's so, a good yes. idea. 
Because <laughs> it's, it's like starts off a happy thing and then wah, wah, he's dead. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, do you wish people a happy anniversary who are married but are dead? You know? <laughs> I think I did on one of these first things. I think I did do a happy anniversary to Sonny and Cher, which which was the double double up uh, uh, bogus of like actually them being divorced and Sonny Bono being dead. So, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So anyway, 1943, uh, Ken Forsey. Does anybody remember? Does that name ring a bell? Because this guy we covered in his band back in the 60s. Uh, yeah, I know. I didn't recognize it either. <laughs> no, I only know Ken Dorsey, the quarterback yeah. from the yeah. 2000s. But. Ken Forsey, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, American yes. bassist from the band Love. He oh, turns, okay. He turned 79 years old today, born in I 1943. Heard, I heard a good love song the other day. It was on a closing credits of a TV show. Hmm. I had to look up. That was good. I also saw a very uh, interesting – I read an interesting article recently about um, – like the uh, the whitening of rock, right? And they talked about mm-hmm. like black how many uh, black rock stars there were, obviously in the fifties and sixties, and it, it talked quite a bit about Arthur Lee, and it was a really interesting piece. Mm. So, well, speaking of the whitening of rock, happy birthday, <laughs> seventy-seven years old. Oh, let me uh, guess, uh, Huey Lewis or something? No, it's not that bad. It's not <laughs> that bad. Eric Clapton, uh, okay, COVID yeah. COVID vaccine denier, uh, Eric Clapton turned seventy-seven <laughs> years old today, born in forty-five. Casual fascist, casual racist. <laughs> COVID That's, hasn't gotten him yet. I, so. I will have to say that is one of the more surprising things that I learned on this podcast when we were covering Eric Clapton and Cream uh, earlier in the sixties in the uh, in the I guess early seventies. I mean, You've got to be racist. Bad. The racist stuff that he would say on stage about yes. like very blatant, not even they like, literally oh. created rockers against racism because of Eric Clapton <laughs> in the 70s, which is a pretty profound thing when you think about it. Oh boy, this guy. We need to create an organization. So yeah, his yeah. his racist comments on stage weren't even the ones that you could kind of look back and be like, actually that was taken out of context. It's full blown, like <laughs> in your face racism. How so. often does that happen? I also <laughs> love how all of like the working class, like English punk bands and stuff were like real anti-racist for the most part, and then you know all these people that were highly educated, right, respectively, were like, "Yeah, oh, I'm just gonna dabble in it a little bit." But yeah, yeah it always makes me in. Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, Ken Forsey and, Ken and Eric Clapton were born yesterday on the 30th, and today we want to celebrate the 67th birthday of Angus Young, guitarist mm-hmm. from ACDC. AC/DC. I did have to Great. do a double take on that because I was like. Because one of the young brothers died, and it wasn't Angus; it was Malcolm. Right. So, uh, happy sixty seventh, Angus. Nice. Uh, he's pretty young for mm-hmm. yeah things considered. Sixty seven. <laughs> it's funny nowadays. I look at sixty seven. I'm like, that's that's not too bad. Still, young. <laughs> yeah. Still got another thirty years left to go. You know, time is a, a corridor of doors, Matt, <laughs> and there's less yeah. doors the longer you walk. So, I, I Very... guess I just meant in terms of seventies artists. That seems pretty young. They're yeah. mostly seventies or older now. But yeah, nice. Good stuff, Matt. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, let me quick give you guys a few quick reviews of some 70s oh, yeah. albums I listened to that are not part of it. Yeah, um, he, he just continued to press on without us. Well, we had a little bit of time, so I just yeah. there were some albums I wanted to listen to. So I listened to uh, five albums over the course of the last week and a half-ish or so. I'll give you a quick thing. I listened were all to, cold listens? Yeah, they're pretty much cold listens. Yeah, I didn't do I, I listened to the Rolling Stones' Black and Blue, which was hmm. the album before Some Girls. There were a few hmm. uh, Stones albums we didn't cover uh, in the, the 70s, uh, Goat's Head Soup and some others. But I did Black and Blue, and uh got to tell you guys, Black and Blue, not so good. <laughs> as, as as the uh, the sounds of the police are in the background of our podcast now, I think they're... 
they're coming to uh, they're coming to take away sort of the reggae appropriation that, unlike many of the bands in the late '70s, as much as I love the Stones, it was uh, it was clearly a transition period between mm. guitarists. I did a little reading, and it was a, yeah, it was a transition period before um, Ron Wood came in and uh, Mick Taylor went out, and yeah, it just was it was a little bit of a mess that album. So can't recommend huh. um, any any hits Black off Floyd. that album that I would know. Uh, probably yeah, the, the most. Bangers? Uh, probably the most well known would be "Fool to Cry," I'd say. Uh, but no, it is not one that um, has the not one hits. they're playing on tour. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't even have like a "She's So Cold" or "Undercover yeah. of the Night," you know, like songs that you kind of would not. No, it just kind of is, just kind of there. So hmm. can't recommend that one. I then listened to the Burning Spear album, Marcus Garvey, which uh, was a Jamaican album, uh, kind of a reggae roots album and uh that's a pretty damn good album guys um it's uh politically charged as you might imagine if you Mm. i don't know how much you guys know about marcus garvey but um he's uh, sort of folk hero yep in in uh, the caribbean that made him an even larger folk hero that album uh but yeah really good album um if you like reggae if you like uh roots uh music especially like sort of an afro-caribbean sound um and especially sort of it being a pioneering of that sound early, right? Compared to you know what would come much much later, um, I would definitely recommend that. So that one gets a thumbs up for me. Would you, I say, listen it, to, would you say it has a different vibe than the Bob Marley for people that yes, don't only yes. listen to that? <laughs> yes, it is not as um, I would not call it as chill hmm. or as sort of um, uh, spiritual. I would say it it feels. I, I would say it has more of um, a seriousness to it um, in terms of the sound. Yeah, that, that would be how I would sort of describe it offhandedly. Gotcha. But yeah, recommendation there. Uh, I listened to a Miles Davis album, a tribute to Jack Johnson, an album I've wanted to listen to a while. Jack Johnson, of course, being uh, kind of the, the first black heavyweight champion yeah. um, in terms of the modern lineage of the world title. And Jack Johnson was a very interesting guy um, in his era. Um, and boy, that was a very good album. I might go so far, guys, to say it's my favorite Miles Davis album that I've listened to, including uh-huh. all the ones going back to the 60s and the 70s that we've covered. Um, it's more like a rock album than it is a jazz album in some ways. It's obviously got the jazz elements in terms of the instrumentation, but it's got a real rock feel. And uh, it's just um, it's a very, very interesting album. Um, it's kind of does a little bit of you know, in Bitches Brew, he was kind of trying to come into the rock era, but it was still a very experimental album. This one is a little bit more of a mainstream album where I, yeah. I think he was going a little bit more for accessibility. And, uh, yeah, I really liked it. Okay. So got to give thumbs up for that one. Uh, did, I listened- did that, Sorry, did that come after Bitches Brew or? It did, yeah. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I listened to Chairs Missing by Wire. And we have covered Wire, and uh, we covered Pink Flag. Uh, my plan was to listen to the albums in order, and I did screw up because uh, their second album, uh, uh, excuse me, um, their second album was, uh, and now I'm myself questioning myself because I screwed up along the way. So, there, excuse me, I, we did Pink Fl- uh, Flag. The second album is Chairs Missing. I listened to 154, I apologize, okay. which was their third album, and 154 was named after the number of shows that Wire had played up to that point. Hmm. And uh, boy, was that a good album. Um, It is not quite as experimental as... I mean, 
you're always going to get some experimentation with wire, right? But um, it's not quite as the bits and pieces that Pink Flag was, just the small stuff. It was yeah. more uh, – there were definitely – a there were more recognizable hooks, I would say, within that album. There's a little bit more pop sensibility. Uh, it okay. definitely was more of like a post-punk album through and through. So, yeah, um, big recommend for that one. I really enjoyed it. And then the final album I listened to was Electric Light Orchestra, Out of the Blue, which we have a uh, super fan who has been uh, asking me to listen to it, saying that he feels... And sort of the critical consensus is that it's the masterpiece. Uh, boy, we talked about ELO and Jeff Lynne um, having a Beatles thing, right? Like having yeah. a big fan. And this one, more so than any, was like a Beatles sound um, in terms of what they were going for. It was uh, another way I described it is kind of like if you took Big Star and you made Big Star like an AOR, like late 70s sound, which... I hope it's not sounding bad because it's a positive thing. Um, these are just big, bold pop songs with mm. a lot of melody, a lot of tunes. The only negative I would say, it is it is a 70-minute album, so it is a long piece of work. Uh, but as an album, I definitely enjoyed it. There's uh, quite a few good songs on it. Uh, the first song, Turn to Stone, and then uh, the third song, Sweet Talking Woman, are the most popular songs in Spotify and are two of the strongest um songs on the album but there's a, a little bit of a like a almost like a, a mexican sound in across the border as you might imagine <laughs> from a song called across the border there's sort of a how can what would be the term i would use for the sound for the song jungle it's it's like a it's like a afro beat type background I, I think I would describe uh, some other standouts for me were standing in the rain and probably the most well-known song on it and the one that I did recognize was Mr. Blue Sky um, oh, yeah yep mm -hmm. which is a, a pretty well-known song and mm -hmm. uh, that slides in at 13 of 17 in the um, the slotting and uh, wow. yeah is, 17 a, is tracks. A, you got it. is a is a really good song. So I would give that one a thumbs up too, even if I would have probably recommended bringing it in at more like forty five minutes than seventy. Mm. But uh, so four of the five, I uh, I have to say I would recommend with uh, strong recommends for one fifty four by Wire and a tribute uh, to Jack Johnson are probably the two. And Bur the Burning Spear album is also very good. So those three. We last talked about ELO back on episode eleven of cold listen hot takes that bonus episode and did you feel, rate those also john in your your rubric of course i did you had to. i did yeah. yep i so. i do keep them if i listen to something i give it a rating so gotcha. they are in the in this anything i listen to that's in the air as we've covered i do give a rating to so nice yeah. mm -hmm. sounds good none would make the top 10 though that okay. we're going to cover later. So they're very, they're very good, but none would be top 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One slipped in at the last minute like that. I, I feel mm -hmm. like if you had listened to an album that good, you would have been like, we have to do an episode on this or something. But maybe not. Uh, 154 by Wire was pretty damn good. Hmm. Maybe maybe as high as like top 15% of albums I listened to in the 70s. Wow, okay. Maybe I'll check that out then. Yeah, and I, I, and I would say if you want to go back into jazz... Uh, realm of things that that uh, tribute Jack Johnson album is also pretty strong, but yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that um, that uh, the Stones album not so much, but the rest of the albums were strong, and so I kept mm. waiting for like more of a variety of my take. But yeah, no, it was a pretty strong week. Mm. Nice. 
All right. So we're going to keep things moving and we're going to transition to our traditional format. And I'm going to cover Neil Young's Rust Never Sleep in the opening montage you heard out of the blue. <laughs> out of the blue. <laughs> you heard my. You my, are a mess, my friend. I am. You Too heard much- my, my, hey, hey out of the blue. And now you're going to hear Powderfinger. Look out, mama, there's a white boat coming up the river With a big red beacon and a flag and a man on the rail I think you better call John Cause it don't look like they're here to deliver The man And it's less than Rust Never Sleeps, the last Neil Young album that I think we'll talk about for a while. Yeah. Um, Josh, you need some numbers here, buddy. Oh, yeah. So Rust Never Sleeps uh, by Neil Young and Crazy Horse ranks technically right now comes in at number 101 in the 1970s, Ooh, okay. um, which I think we actually did end up covering. I think we're ending up covering 101 albums, the top 101. So that, yes. that, that tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, number nine in 1979, at number 401 of all time. It's um, Neil Young's, well, it depends, right? On Best Ever Album, Neil Young's uh, fifth highest album on Best Ever Albums. But if you want to call it, count this as Neil Young and Crazy Horse, it's their second highest album on Best Ever Albums because mm. they do delineate between the two. Yep. Um, this also made Rolling Stones list coming in at number 296. All right. So we last talked about Neil Young on episode 23 with uh, when we discussed On the Beach and... Once again, we see how prolific Neil Young is between 1975's Tonight's the Night, which we talked about on a cold listen, and this album, um, released almost exactly four years apart, he put out four albums. Um, Crazy Horse had been sort of in limbo at this time since Danny Witten's death in 1975. Some of the members um, had played on 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 the beach and tonight's the night but they didn't use the name crazy horse at that time and in late 1974 billy talbot's friend billy talbot of crazy horse his friend frank poncho san pedro was uh, frank quote unquote poncho san pedro oh i was about to say his name's not frank (laughs) poncho san pedro would be amazing (laughs) and uh, he was brought in on rhythm guitar and that was enough to bring the chemistry back um, and the feeling back to Crazy Horse, and then uh, they were jamming with Neil Young, and they had the uh, the uh, desire to the spark they needed to bring a Crazy Horse in on on recording this album, bring them back, resurrect them in in a sense. Um, it also allowed Neil Young to finish Powderfinger, actually jamming with them. Um, and so the album after tonight's the night was uh on the beach and or not on the beach was zuma and crazy horse um joined them on that and and then in 1976 young briefly reunited with steven stills on the next ah. album long may you run which is credited 
technically as the Stills Young Band. And uh, they went on tour for that, but it ended midway through due to another falling out that they had. And I don't know why these guys are gotten for punishment. I know. To just keep, you know, <laughs> I guess. They make money, I guess, right? I mean, they, they, I don't people, know. Like, people like the combinations. Or the, the creative spark, I guess kind of overrides common sense i don't know i'm not an artist who knows um <laughs> and then uh, also in 76 that you might have heard on thanksgiving day of that year neil young performed in the last waltz concert yep. the final performance of the band along with many other people that we've talked about <laughs> including the band uh, bob dylan Joni mitchell and and others and uh famous for neil young having a coke bubble in his nose at that time and Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, who directed the film, being uh, aggravated that he had to re-edit around that, or he was resistant to doing that uh, before the release of the film. Neil Young's next album was called American Stars and Bars, which came out in 1977 and featured not only Crazy Horse, but Linda Ronstadt, Emmylou Harris, and Neil Young's protege, Nicolette Larson, who you hear singing on the album we're talking about tonight in the track Sail Away. And after that, 1978, his next album, Comes a Time, features all new material and has a sound similar to the Nashville country sound that we heard on on Harvest. So again, once again, showing his his uh, never resting in one type of music and, and kind of going back and forth between you know he's so prolific and a lot of stuff he writes doesn't get released right away and and uh you can see that there <laughs> this is crazy he also started to make a movie uh, during this time called human highway which was a comedy and he was a co-director along with russ tamblin from uh john may no recognized from from uh twin peaks and west side story and uh dean mm-hmm. stockwell who you may recognize from uh i don't know Quantum Leap. Yes, Quantum Leap. Thank you. And Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) thank you. And uh, also Dennis Hopper appears in that film. And then crazily enough, the members of Devo appear in that film as nuclear garbage persons. And they perform Hey, Hey, My, My, Into the Black with Neil Young on the album. Now, or on the movie. The movie wasn't released until 1982, however, in a small number of theaters, and then it wasn't released until home video in 1996. Damn. Um, you can currently see it on Blu-ray if you are interested, but it's not streaming anywhere, so uh, you'll have to, to buy it and support Neil Young that way. And uh, coming up to 1978, Neil Young started the Rust Never Sleeps tour, which was new material. Um, that you've heard on this album and was divided like this album into solo acoustic sets and then an electric set with Crazy Horse. So that division is there again. Acoustic. (laughs) Exactly. The electric set was influenced by the punk rock music going on at the time, um, says Neil. And the album, this is the album that a lot of musicians and people uh, attribute to the precursor to grunge and many artists of the grunge era have said that they were inspired by his distorted guitar sound uh, on this album which you heard he actually released two albums based on this tour the album we're talking about tonight rust never sleeps which was released june 22nd 1979 and the album live rust in november of that year which is an actual concert album um, featuring new and old material of his a concert movie was also released called rust never sleeps um, which was released that year as well and i have not seen that also Uh, many of the songs on this album were recorded live 
The first three were recorded in San Francisco at the boarding house between May 24th and 28th of 1978. And then Sail Away and Pocahontas were recorded in the studio um, earlier, earlier in the year or at an earlier time. And then bringing it back to Devo a little bit, at the final performance on the 28th at the boarding house, he performed Hey, Hey, My, My, Into the Black, which is the closing track, the kind of harder grunge track. In the stu- He performed that in a studio with Devo and would later introduce the song to Crazy Horse. So it kind of originated between him and Devo. And during the studio recording, it was actually Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo who added the lyric, Rust, Rust Never Sleeps. And then Neil Young took that in his recording and named, named the album after that and incorporated it into, into the song. Um, the electric portion of the sets on this album, which is kind of the back half of the LP, the last three songs, were recorded live in late 78, but overdubs were added later in the studio. And they tried to take out as much of the audience noise as possible, but you can still hear clearly yeah. that there's um, audience cheering and stuff at different times on the album. Uh, I should say that Crazy Horse, since they're credited as on the album, um, you know, in the title, Neil Young, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse consists of Frank Pancho, Sam Pedro on electric guitar, Billy Talbot on bass, and Ralph Molina on drums. And Rolling Stone voted uh, Neil Young Artist of the Year, along with The Who in 1979, and picked Rust Never Sleeps as Album of the Year. And the Village Voices annual Paz and Jot poll, which is such an interesting, those are all archived online, and you can read um, Robert Criscow's thoughts on the year as they were happening um they placed it as the second best album of the year behind graham parker and the rumors squeezing sparks which i actually listened to yeah. a while back and it's fun it's kind of elvis costello-esque he's a british guy and i think the rumors um may be involved with elvis costello so far um in some so, way but so you said that rolling stone voted Neil Young and the Who, the best artists of the year in 1970. What what were the Who doing in 1979? I I don't know. Um, John, <laughs> uh, boy, That's... that was not quite Who's last. Um, <laughs> that seems weird. I mean, we were done with the Who in like 74, yeah. 70. Wow, we haven't talked about them in a while. I did maybe that like a la- point. Let me now. While you guys are finishing this up, now I'm that just seems it. like I'm just sorry. That just seems like a misstep with all the stuff we've covered and like how like oh the late seventies are so great and you're going to say that the Who is the greatest is the yeah, artist of the year. That seems mm-hmm. strange to me. Maybe they went on tour or something. Who knows? Yeah. Did they name an album? Who knows? They should have. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Oh, <laughs> so many possibilities. Mm. Uh, it looks like Quadrophenia came out in '79. Or music for the, the movie, soundtrack. the movie yeah. Quadrophenia. Came Maybe out. that put them back in the contest. So it's uh, it's the album was Who Are You, which is a big stadium rock album. So okay, okay. Um, which yeah, I also Keith Moon died in 1979, hmm. or actually oh. no, excuse me, he died in September 7th, 1978. I apologize. So actually, um, the tour after this and Quadrophenia and sort of all that stuff was all post Neil Young. Okay. Or Neil Young, uh, Keith Moon, and also there was that who con- the um, you know that like disaster that that uh, tragedy at the Who concert with the Stampede. I think it was in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, that was also 1979. So they certainly had an eventful year, but okay. I don't know if it was a creatively artistic year. Yeah, probably definitely enough to keep them in 
the, the consciousness of the critics. But um, that's all I had, actually. And John, what did you think of Rust Never Sleeps? Yeah, this uh, this was my favorite Neil Young album of all the Neil Young albums we've mm-hmm. covered. And I've liked quite a few of them. But yeah, I mean, the the easy things right off the bat, like you mentioned, I, I the the um, the second version of My My Hey Hey is mm-hmm. like you can't get more grunge than that. It sounds like a it sounds like the Melvins or Helmet like playing yeah, a, a song, which of course is before those. But it's right. yeah, it's 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 that sludgy. It, it, there are a lot of bands that yeah, Meat Puppets, Melvins, Helmet, that those type bands that came later, and I of course like that sound. So yep. I love I love the heaviness of it. Um, this is one of my favorite Neil Young albums lyrically, even if sometimes his lyrical choices are interesting, like. Pocahontas, you just go like, where, you know, how did Neil Young get there? You know what I mean? Because it's kind of literal, you know, yeah. like to the point of him saying, I wonder what it'd be like to sleep with Pocahontas so that I could, you know, know her pain kind of. And it's like, and Marlon Brando. In, yeah, it, it, interesting. And so like, thematically, he's very interesting because he kind of keeps you on your toes. But um, there's a reason Kurt Cobain's suicide note had my, my, hey, hey in it, you know, because the line, you know, better to, to burn out than to fade away is mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, it's, it's a classic line, you know, and it, it does describe a certain mindset that, that is like getting older or, you know, uh, if you're struggling to find the excitement in things, you know, and, and feel, you know, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Russ Never Sleeps is another great analogy. Um, and they combine both of them together. So I might, Go so yeah, I, I think I I might go so far as to say that's my favorite Neil Young song. It just encapsulates all the things that I love about Neil. It's great lyrics. It's a great chorus. It the guitar is great. I love the fact there's two different versions of it and they both sound different. So it gives you it's like two different songs, yep. even though it's the same one, which yep. I really appreciate about that. But I just there's really no bad songs on this album. The length is perfect. Um, I like the way – the more Neil Young albums go on, the more I feel he gets better and better at couching his unique voice in sort of a sonic palette that doesn't make it kind of overrun things and, and puts it at the exact amount where the uniqueness of Neil Young's voice is a real asset to the work as opposed to sometimes – the sparse arrangements, you know, he can kind of, and I know people have different opinions on that, but sometimes mm-hmm. I feel with sparse arrangements, Neil Young can kind of, you know, his voice and, and his delivery can kind of overrun um, a song. But yeah, it's just a reminder also of how enjoyable Neil Young for me is as a guitar player, because he's not doing anything like overly complicated on the guitar, but he's just, he's just, gr- you know, grinding and thudding like on yeah. the guitar at, at, at points in this album, which I love. And yeah, I, I can't mention enough how the distortion on the guitar is. There's been bits and pieces where you've heard it in Neil Young's albums. It's always yeah. to some degree there, but this one, it's the it's the overriding theme, um, certainly on the guitar parts, uh, that sound. Um, and it's just a, it's a really tight band behind him as well, Crazy Horse. They sound great, which is interesting because they've had so many it's tumultuous, you know, in terms of people yeah. coming in and coming out, but they, they sound like a tight band and they sound like a tight touring band as well. So yeah, strong recommend for this. I really enjoyed this album. 
Um, and and I would, I don't even think I would hedge my bet on this. I think this is my favorite Neil Young album that we've covered, which in turn I think makes it my favorite Neil Young album. Period. All right. Yeah. Well, you guys know how I feel about Neil Young, which I'm <laughs> yeah. very much a, a huge fan and. Um, I didn't know this album, although I knew a number of the songs on it. I do have um, Live Rust, so um, a number mm. of the songs that are on this also made it onto Live Rust, including the the My My Hey Hey's and the Hey Hey My My's. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like I like the setup of this that it's got the acoustic side on side A and then the then the electric side on side B. Yep. Um, I I I know that this is you, you know you're kind of <clears throat> mentioning how this is known for the. Uh, <clears throat> the Godfather of Grunge kind of moniker that he that he that he mm. got. Um, I, I'm I'm a bigger fan of the first side to be honest. I think it's mm. a more consistent side. I and I it's it's it sounds great. The production is great. It's very crisp and clear. I love just the whatever the tone that he's playing with on that elect on that acoustic guitar. It's got a little bit of an echoey. It's kind of a tinny. I don't I I don't think it's a twelve string guitar that he's playing, but it's kind of has a similar feel in some ways to the to a 12 string guitar it's just a very full um very crisp kind of sound Mm -hmm. and uh and i just these are all just great examples of how neil young can just do acoustic music so so well um you know and uh again i knew you know pocahontas is just a is just a is a really pretty song uh you know thrasher i i didn't know that before i really enjoyed that uh, and I uh, didn't know ride my llama, although I think he pronounces it llama to rhyme with whatever he's, you know, whatever he's rhyming with. So I'd ride my he's llama. Canadian too. So, yeah, you know, it could my just llama. be that. Um, and sail away is a really pretty song too. So it's just a really, really strong first half of this record that, you know, just shows how good he is at doing those kind of acoustic songs. Um, and then side two is great too. My, um, I, powder fingers are great tune. Love that. And I, I agree with everything you said about the, um, the, the, Hey, Hey, my, my John, the, the, the heavier sound. That's a very, that opening guitar riff is just like, that's turned up to 11 and it's yes, it's a sludgy kind of like heavy guitar sound um that the downside to me is a little bit within not the whole parts but welfare mothers that kind of chorus is a little i don't know (laughs) it does but i but it not it's it's to me it's not a great it's kind of um it's kind of just there it's a little i don't want to say it's annoying but it's not my favorite uh, Mm. type of chorus and the same thing with sedan delivery both of those songs kind of have a like sedan delivery's got that repeating like gotta get away and it just over and over great song lyrically though it really is yeah Yeah. but you know how i feel about that so i mean that's Mm -hmm. you know but with those parts kind of like over and over in my head and i don't think that they are particularly strong musically um, so they kind of it's it's kind of knocked down a tick or two for me on those. Um, the, the you know the other parts of the songs I like like the verses and I do like the sound of the guitar. I think that that's very strong. But that kind of stood out to me as being like a little bit um, to me somewhat toss away songs, unfortunately. And I was kind of wishing that maybe there were other because I know that Neil Young has other you know kind of heavier songs or more distorted songs around this time. Some stuff that he might have done on Live Rust that I would have preferred to have heard 
on here. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, oh man, this album stinks or anything like that. Far from it. I mean, I think it really showcases his talent, both as, you know, a gentle acoustic singer songwriter, but also like a dude that's not afraid to rock out and plug in and, and go heavy. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, that's one of his, his great talents. Love his voice, love the energy. He's got edge, even the, the acoustic songs, there's edge on those, you know, his voice is kind of just this really distinctive sound. Again, I understand why people wouldn't like it, but I think it works beautifully i think he's just i think he's just got a real he's a real unique talent and um and just his guitar his when he does play the electric guitar when he does play guitar solos he does have a very um distinct way of playing it's not crisp and clean it's or polished it's very aggressive and kind of Mm -hmm. you know um i don't want to say he's making mistakes but he's not afraid to kind of just like you know take it to another level where a, a probably a less a lesser guitarist might, you know, try to do something similar and it sounds really shitty, but he kind of does it in a way that just, he really pulls it off. So overall, very strong, just kind of wish I, you know, I, 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 it's my own personal thing with those two other songs. It's the choruses, the way they kind of get stuck in your head that it's not my, I I think musically he could have been a little Hmm. bit stronger there, but, uh, but overall I, I enjoyed it. Those songs though, this album's about him getting older, which is what I love about Neil Young. He like kind Mm -hmm. of, he, you, you find out where he is in his life and what he's focusing on to, yeah. you know, whether it be loss or a divorce or stuff. And this album's clearly about, you know, getting older and those songs it's, it is weird for me in some ways, Matt, that you put so little focus on lyrics. Cause I, I do. It's weird for me that you can love Neil Young as much as you do while also sort of the lyrics, just not computing Register. for you <laughs> because there, it's so much a part of the neil young experience for me and what makes me like him so much that it's just i'm just like boy if matt had the lyrics like i can only imagine the heights that neil young would get to I mean, what's he's the, I like mean, oh, this much without the lyrics yeah it, it well to me it's about the sound right and maybe and sometimes i was talking to my brother about this too and, I, and he had a, he put it a good way too it's not it's sometimes the lyrics sound good just the way that they, they, the words are put together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily what's saying, or it's just like, it's like Dylan's always a good example of that. Dylan just puts a string of words together and it's like, what the hell is that about? Nobody knows, but it sounds cool. But also to me, it's more about the, 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 the vocal. I'm listening to the vocals as an instrument. I'm listening to Neil Young's voice as an instrument. And unless there's some horrendous lyric coming out of there, I'm not going to, it's not going to, Generally speaking, no. I'm not going to gravitate towards it or really yeah. pay attention. I'm not to saying it. you're I wrong. Mean, welfare I'm just mothers, saying it's yeah. It's welfare unusual. mothers. Yeah, I picked up on. I mean, he wants to. He's welfare mothers make better lovers. Let's like you know. And I was like, well, okay, there. That's that's up, you know. But I did. But I don't know. I didn't really. That's. I'm not paying it. I. I'm not listening to music for that. I'm listening to it for the music. And uh, you know, if I was more interested in lyrics, I'd be. I don't know, reading more literature or poetry or whatever. You know. So that that's kind of how I look at it. But, mm. um. But I know. I'm. I'm also in the minority. I know a lot of other people that look at me like I'm crazy, and I just. I don't know what to tell you. It's just how my brain works. So, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I describe his, whatever, the sound that comes to my head when you describe his guitar playing is kind of like earthy. He's just like willing and natural. Mm. He's willing to yeah. just play in a way that feels right to him and, and it, it works for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, and that's, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I, I love this album too. This is probably my second favorite after everyone knows this is nowhere. And it could be number one. I don't know. There's the, he's been so consistent. I feel like I've been kind of saying the same thing every review. I just really love how he's able to straddle that line between 
playing acoustic and playing electric in a way that really works for me and that very few artists that we've talked about are able to do. Um, and having the distinct kind of, you know, first side, second side of the album be those things kind of highlights that as well, that they're both enjoyable. They're both essential Neil Young and essential in, in the, uh, essence sort of way the the essence of neil young and and uh it it both works for me uh, on different levels the if i go with the back half first and the electric stuff it just is kind of almost shocking how how that hey hey my my into the black sounds it's Mm. it's so it caught me off guard because it just sounds so different right away when you hear the the guitar sound it sounds so 90s for lack of you know, a better description. And, and we've said before kind of how his electric guitar test sounds different, but this is kind of on another level. And, and uh, I, I really enjoyed the rest of the electric parts, but the fact that, like John said, you have two different versions of the same song. He's like covering his own song in some, in some way almost. And they sound so different. It's just, kind of a testament to how great he is and you never heard either one of those before josh i heard the acoustic i don't think i've heard the the um, electric version Mm -hmm. of that before and i hadn't heard this album before either you know who that song's about josh uh elvis i see i do know this no (laughs) john John, you know what you know who it's about right uh but my my hey hey yeah uh, isn't it about Johnny Rotten from the yeah. Sex Pistols? Yeah, and he actually yeah. says it in there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. About, yeah. Well, it's, it's about like Elvis homage too. to Johnny Rotten. He makes yeah. the comparison. Yes, he yeah he compares yeah. him to Elvis. Yeah. yeah, so you're both right. Yeah, and and that's the other thing too is sometimes I feel like these artists are kind of in their own bubbles, but name checking somebody like Johnny Rotten, who the Sex Pistols, you know, is kind of and punk itself is such a young sound at that time, but the fact that he is like tapped into it and at least yeah. able to make the comparison between Elvis and Johnny Rotten is so, is so interesting to me. Um, and the fact that Johnny Rotten later kind of n- covers a Neil Young song on, on a BBC or a British radio show or something. So just kind of that linking between decades and generations, you know, cause yeah. he's still young at this time, but he's not young like Johnny Rotten's young, who's what in his early twenties, I think right. probably. Well, well I, you know, Go ahead, Matt. I'll I was just going to say, Neil Young's like, he's he's a child of the 60s, right? And right. Maybe was, and, and remember, and he started off with Rick James back in the day when you were like, how was that ever a thing? You know, that's how old they go back and or how long they go back. And I think this also stands out to me because Neil Young's always lumped in with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And he he's yes. way surpassed them with stuff like this. I mean, it's it's like the stuff that he was doing in the late 70s and even mid-70s, really, is the stuff. I mean, what, what the hell are Crosby, Stills, and Nash doing? They're still kind of like probably lamenting the uh, the loss right. of the 60s and all that stuff so he he rose above that and kind of transcended that and um and you know probably uh was more appealing to younger listeners as a result you know yeah i always think back to i remember right before he died john lennon was really pissed off about this song and he said he hated the idea of like better to burn out than fade away because he likes people that stay around and just sort of mm. survive and you know, are able to be themselves. And it, it kind of always gave me an idea of like what Lennon, I think, would have been like older. I think he mm. would have been a lot like Paul McCartney, to be quite yeah. honest. Um, and Neil, Neil Young kind of responded to the comments. I think people did it. And he kind of 
he said, you know, I remember reading it. It's, I'm reading it now as I'm here. He's like, the rock and roll spirit is not survival. Of course, the people who play rock and roll should survive. But the essence of rock and roll spirit to me is that it's better to burn out really bright than to sort of decay off into infinity. Hmm. Even though if you look at it in a mature way, you think, well, yes, you should decay off into infinity and keep going. But rock and roll shouldn't look that far ahead. Rock and roll is right now, and it's about energy. man. And can you think of anything that yeah. more describes... Neil Young, that's one of he, why he's one of the few cool old artists, because instead of like trying to bring the narrative to him and celebrating like fading, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. he says, no, you know, really rock and roll. I'm not saying go die, but like kind of you're not really doing it right if you don't have a certain energy to it. And, uh, you know, yeah. I have to admit I'm in the the uh, I don't think we should celebrate those that are. It's so funny that we're doing Joy Division on this episode. Too, yeah. Which, yes. yeah. But um, it's, uh, I don't know if we should celebrate those that die early, you know what I mean, in that way. But I also understand the sentiment of, you know, there's a vibrancy that when you're, you're doing it at 50-60 and you're playing the hits, I yeah. think that type of stuff just appalls Neil Young, and I can understand it. Yeah from my personality. Yeah. Well, and if you and if you look to it as, at his discography, I mean, he's just he continually does albums and sometimes mm -hmm. he'll do something like a, like an, a full-blown acoustic album like he's got this album Silver and Gold that was done like in 2000 that's super, you know, chill and then he does like something like you know, Mirrorball or Greendale or like Living in War, you know, he does, you know, he gets a little heavy handed, like he gets, he does get very, a little overly political sometimes, but he does, he, he just does what he, you know, feels like doing and he'll, and he, you know, he doesn't really, he's not really reinventing the wheel or anything like that, but he's, his energy and his passion is always there. I saw him once, you know, went during the Greendale concert and uh, tour. And that's, I don't know if you guys know that album. It's like, that's a concert. That's like a story. It's like its own mm. rock opera kind of thing. It's, it's okay as an album. I would have rather seen him play more of the hits or just more of an eclectic version of things rather than just that album. But he, his performance was awesome. Like his, it's this dude, it's just like shredding on the guitar and like, he's, he's something special. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, I mad respect for him overall. It's, he's just, he's a really unique talent. Yeah, he's able to, I mean, it gets to that fact that there's always like a danger element yeah. to to being in a rock and roll lifestyle and, and living that mindset, right? It's like, how far can you live on the edge without going over, essentially? And, you know, many of the artists that he's probably referencing or that we think of that have died too early, you know, kind of went too far or unintentionally obviously most of the time and then um but it's just kind of the well it's the same way as pro wrestling right it's a hard lifestyle and mm -hmm. and uh you kind of have to live that life in order to be one of the best probably or it just has to evolve into something different which kind of rock and wrestling both have you know what i mean they've become a little bit more of a healthy lifestyle for those that are in it. But you could also argue that some of the edge, you know, and that dynamism, right. Mm -hmm. Has, has, and it's a catch 22 because yep. there's an argument to be made for both. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, it's just, a. am glad we ended the, the decade on this album it was kind of a nice mm. capstone because he's been there throughout even yeah. into the 60s and then we heard many albums of his throughout the whole decade so it was it was good hearing it right on yep all right all right <laughs> so somebody so, that uh you know lived too hard maybe I'm yeah, <laughs> something so we're at joy division this is the first time we're covering joy division and the opening montage uh for, this is their album unknown pleasures uh you heard a clip from she's lost control and now you're going to hear a clip from new dawn fades
So Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures comes in at number um, eight in the 1970s on Best Ever Albums, cracking the top 10, number three in 1979, number 35 of all time. And uh, it did make Rolling Stone's list, although not as high. It's uh, number 211 for Rolling Stone. Um, And this is uh, Joy Division's highest rated album. Um, They've actually only have two proper albums, so so they don't have a whole lot. I think we're going to cover the other one in the 80s, too, so we're going to get all the Joy Division. Um, so this record was recorded in April of 1979 and released on June 15th, 1975. It is their debut album. There were no singles from this record and the album did not chart. So, um, it did, it did not sell well, but it was overall well received by critics. Uh, the band consists of Ian Curtis on vocals, Bernard Sumner on guitars and keyboards, Peter Hook on bass and Stephen Morris on drums. And a little history on the band. They were formed in Salford, England in 1976 by Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook, who were uh, childhood friends. And they were inspired to start a band after they both saw a Sex Pistols concert. Um, But they didn't go to the show together. They just ended up being at the show and later on were like, noticed that they were there and they were said, hey, we should start a band. So the next day, Hook borrows 35 pounds from his mom and he buys a bass. And uh, they begin with the two of them. They, they get a drummer by the name of Terry Morrison to join. I'm sorry, Terry Mason, excuse me. And they then did one of John's favorite things, which was placing an ad in the Manchester Virgin <laughs> Records shop to, uh, to solicit a lead singer. And that Spoiler was alert, that's how you guys are getting replaced one day, basically. <laughs> Just... <laughs> John's going to place an ad, and yeah. Uh, and whatever version of the Virgin record shop we have today. <laughs> We're going to have some sort of argument in which we go a different way, and I'm going to carry on the name of the podcast, but it's going to be a shell of our old version. Yeah. You so, have to yeah. twi- wouldn't Twitter would be the modern-day version of that, wouldn't it? I mean, it would have to be, like, because nobody's I, posting ads and papers. You could do it on the, the grocery store, corkboard. The grocery store. <laughs> I, think, I think the last thing that could possibly have done it was, like, when MySpace was around. I could see a because ba- there were bands that formed in my... I don't even know how you do it now. Because yeah. people don't really, like, I guess people post their own music, you know, and get discovered mm-hmm. that way. But right. I think, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Ian Curtis responds to this ad, and he actually knew the other other members of the band, and um, they just offered him a spot without an audition. And later, Sumner said um, that he knew that he quote knew he was all right to get on with, and that's what we based the whole group on. If we liked someone, they were in. So there you go. <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Good, yeah, yeah, good, good in some respects. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, I th- I'm pretty sure that uh, Sumner and Hook hate each other now, like hmm. like really bad. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> So the band originally called themselves Warsaw, which was inspired by the David Bowie song Warsaw, oh, Warsaw yes, from okay. the 1977 Low. album Low, correct? Um, and the band Warsaw debuted on May 29th, 1977 in support of three other bands, including the Buzzcocks. Hmm. So they got immediate, pretty much positive reviews, and they started making, uh, starting getting some national exposure pretty early on. Um, and the drummer, Terry Mason, actually ends up becoming the manager. And they bring on another guy by the name of Steve Steve Brotherdale to play the drums. No, he, and he just said, I'm going to be the manager instead. He, yeah, it was kind of just a throwaway <laughs> line. says, okay, so then Mason became a manager. So, uh, so we get this other guy to play drums. Um, and then they record a demo in July of 77. And uh, this is this is all time uh, gangster move of of kicking somebody out of a band, so they're not really happy with Brother Dale as in general, particularly his aggressive personality. 
And so they fire they fire him soon after the, the, the demo session was recorded. And they did this during a drive home from the studio. And they pulled over and asked Brotherdale to check on a flat tire. When he gets out of the car, they drove off. So, oh, my uh, God. <laughs> wow. Yep. Pretty, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, in August, they put up another ad in a music shop for a drummer. And this time, it was only answered by one person, which was Stephen Morris. And uh, he actually also knew, knew Ian Curtis from school. So that was another, uh, you know, uh, friend that, that, that some, at least somebody knew. So he joins the band and that rounds out the, uh, the, the foursome that basically um, is the band for the remainder of their, uh, of their duration. Uh, but they had to change their name because there was another band in London called Warsaw Pact, P-A-K-T, and they didn't want to be confused with them. So they named, they changed their name to Joy Division in early 1978. And this is one of the most, I was sad when I learned about this because I didn't know what Joy Division, where it came from or what it meant. Do either oh, of you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I do. No, is, I wasn't it like, a, it was like a Nazi thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Like the uh, the women, the <laughs> prostitutes, or the women, right? Yes. Like kind of like a, the Jap- Japanese comfort women, right? But like yeah. in Nazi, yeah, okay, yeah. It was the sexual slavery wing of a Nazi concentration yes. camp. Yes, um, mentioned go. in mentioned oh. in the 1955 novel House of Dolls, but that's actually what it was, and that's 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 another thing that I just realized that like sometimes I'm just oblivious <laughs> and stupid to things. Like I obviously am aware of the Holocaust and stuff. I had never thought of anything about sexual slavery. Of course, the Nazis would have done stuff stuff like that, yeah. but I never even thought of that. So that idea just stuck in my head, and I was. Yeah, I was like, geez, that's a messed up thing, and they're going to name their band after that. So, yeah, there you go. Their lyrics and music match it. (laughs) I was about to say, there were some other references of it inside of it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so in April of 78, they catch the attention of a music producer, Tony Wilson, as well as a manager, Rob Gretton. And Gretton convinces the band to take him on as manager. So out goes the original drummer. Um, And he's got a relentless work ethics and is credited to much of the band's uh, success. And in June of 78, they did release their debut EP, which was called An Ideal for Living. And there's more Nazi uh, symbolism here because on the picture of that, the cover of that album features a drawing of a young Hitler youth member. Um, And that coupled with the band's name, it fueled speculation about their political affiliations. um, And they were, (laughs) while they were were somewhat intrigued by fascism at the the time, that uh, Morris, the drummer, believes that their, uh, you know, their dally, their, their, you know, uh, ex- exploration into Nazi imagery came from a desire to keep the memories in this, of the sacrifices of their parents and grandparents during World War II alive. Mm-hmm. And he argued that the accusations of neo-Nazi sympathies, quote, merely provoked the band to keep on doing it because that's the kind of th- people we are. <laughs> so, uh, that seem- so, yeah, yeah. That seems kind of like some of the bands in New York at the punk rock. They started wearing like Nazi stuff on their clothes and things just to be provocative. And yeah. Yep. Um, so they make their, they made a television debut in September of that year. And then in December, Ian Curtis suffers a severe epileptic seizure on the way home from a gig. And uh, he had to be hospitalized for that, but that was kind of the beginning of um, a, a number of seizures that, that Ian Curtis would have throughout the duration of his life. Um which would just add to his, uh, you know, the, the issues that he had, um, the personal issues that he had as well. And so for this record, they bring in a producer by the name of Martin Hannett to work on the album. Uh, he wasn't, uh, and Hannett wasn't a fan of the minimalist production of many punk records. Um, and for, for this album, he wanted to use a number of different techniques and sound effects, which 
are 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 many and there's there's a list here this things called the AMS 1580s digital delays the Marshall time modulators tape echoes as well as the sound of bottle smashing someone eating crisps backwards <laughs> guitar and the sound of strawberry studios lift with a Leslie speaker whir, uh, whirring inside and the and the uh, the sound of a basement toilet. So he's just using all kinds of sound effects in this. Um, he he later said that the band was a dream to work with because they didn't know the band didn't know what they were doing <laughs> in the recording studio. So they basically just agreed to whatever Hannett would suggest. So uh, there weren't a whole lot of arguments. Um, but Hannett actually has a huge part in the overall sound of uh, of Joy Division and um, is credited with being just a- as important to this record as the band members themselves. Um, and all music writes that Hannah's productions on Unknown Pleasures was as much a hallmark as the music itself, describing it as emphasizing space in the most revelatory way since the dawn of dub. And uh, Hook and Sumner were not fans of the production. When it first came out, they felt that it was changing their sound. It was a very different hmm. sound than what their live performances were. Um, a lot of their live performance was very energetic, a lot of guitar, but uh, the production here had toned down the sound. And uh, Hook complained that they sounded too much like Pink Floyd. Um, Morrison Curtis, however, like <laughs> that's, yeah, that's every every band that thinks of themselves as you know like counterculture and stuff. It's like oh, I don't want to sound like Pink Floyd. That yeah. seems to be like the especially in Britain. It's sort of like is the shorthand. Yeah, so they're the punching bag. Genesis sure. is the other one that no one wants to sound like. They get ragged on a lot too, in, in stuff I read. So, yeah, well. Mm-hmm. I disagree, but anyway. <laughs> well, no, I'm um, just saying they, they represent, so, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, there's something, but, like, yeah. There's something cool. about those two bands in Britain yeah. that rep... I don't know if it's not cool as much as the minimalist, right, folks? It's like, yeah. like they view, like, Genesis and, yeah, yeah, Pink Floyd as, like... Or prog rock in general, really, right? Like, yeah. it's yeah. just the overdone, yeah. Um, Morrison Curtis did like the production, actually, so... Um, uh, but later on, you know, Peter uh, you know, Hook, uh, you know, agreed that the production was actually pretty good in 2006, that he it definitely didn't turn out sounding the way I wanted it. But I, I can now see that Martin did a good job on it. There's no two ways about it. Martin Hannett created the Joy Division sound. So um, so he's pretty important here. The cover is also pretty famous. Um, it was designed by a guy named Peter Seville, and it's based on radio waves from Pulsar 1919. Mm whatever I was wondering is. yeah it's some radio waves that he had, he had created Space. um they were that's the first sp- pulsar ever I think that was photographed oh is it I actually think I, that's what it I, is I, I did look this up I actually thought that we might have to do something remember with that way early on we did the birds album and they had some sort of song about uh, some space <laughs> some space thing oh I well yeah Josh not liking it too much I didn't know if it was yeah. the same thing but it's not um <laughs> so uh the sales were very slow on this re- on this record um but then there was a non-album single called Transmission, which was released in November of 79. And um, once that was released, they sold out of the original pressing, which was somewhere around ten to 15,000 copies. Hmm. But it was reissued on July of 1980, and it reached number 71 uh, the next month. And then for the 40th anniversary, uh, there was a reissue of the album, um, in, which was in 2019. And at that point, it reached number five on the UK charts, making it their highest charting album. But taking it 40 years after its release so um so we'll cover them again in the 80s but um yeah so let's let's go with our takes here josh what do you think of the uh, unknown pleasures here well we've we've got a contender for the most depressing album of the decade that's uh that's saying something you know between nick drake's albums and the berlin album mm-hmm. of lou reed i mean that's up here that i mean this this album just seems 
so dark in sound and feeling. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, that quality kind of pick. I picked up on that almost right away. Just hearing the music, the music sounds so not sludgy, but it's like slow. It's like echoey. Mm-hmm. It's like you're in a tunnel or a well at times, and um, it's sad too. It's they're like I don't know. This is like depression. Per- in the musical form almost in some ways it's uh it's and it just sounds so different too I, I couldn't think of another album that we've talked about that sounds like this I mean I think there's things that are somewhat similar but it is kind of its own thing the the drums are up front a lot the, the bass sounds up front as well or the guitar is like toned really down so it sounds like a bass on some way and it's very um the album itself is like very melodic and kind of just like repeating repeating guitar uh, sound throughout the whole album on many of the different sounds throughout each song but it's it's kind of i don't know not repetitive in a bad way but uh, i don't know melodic or hypnotic in some sort of Mm. some way um I definitely paid attention to the lyrics uh, on this album. There's a uh, things like on insight, which is in, about in the middle of the album. He says, I, I don't care anymore. I've lost the will to want more. And then on new dawn fades, they say, I took the blame directionless. So plain to see a loaded gun won't set you free. So they say, so you say, and it's, it sounds very personal. This album, um, although they've, on an album or a song like she's lost control they kind of put it on somebody else or a story about someone else and i guess also kind of sounds like black sabbath in a way it's it's metal it's a metal sounding album in in a sense and that's kind of slow deliberate type of pacing to it Hmm. um the uh yeah it's it's hard to say it was enjoyable. It was definitely listenable, you know, kind of different in the way that we've talked about some of those cold listen albums that were very hard to get through. I wouldn't say that this was something I listened to all of the time, but I did appreciate it. And I can kind of see so many influences coming from Joy Division also. It's uh, it, it's singular in, in a way, but it's also like for a certain type of person and a certain type of mood um, or a combination of those. It's, uh, you know, it's emo in a way in, the, in that respect too. It's, it, it's emotional, but in a kind of uh, expressionless sort of way. <laughs> it's kind of contradictory, I guess, but yeah, interesting album. I wouldn't say I loved it, but I didn't definitely didn't hate it either. Yeah, I, I have a little bit different take than you on this one, Josh, because I, I like this album a lot. Mm, um, okay. I I think it it's singular only in the sense that it, there's n- it's there's not a lot in the '70s which is doing this, but boy, is there a lot in the '80s and '90s that's doing this. And that's the first thing that comes to mind for me is boy, this sound is the sound that begat like a lot of synth pop in the 80s that icy synth pop Mm -hmm. a lot of like house and industrial even bands in like the 2000s like the kaiser chiefs and franz ferdinand i mean those bands you know the parts and elements of them even a little bit of 
you know, they pop it up a little bit, but the sort of the nihilism at times in their lyrics is there. Um, I remember way back when, when we did There's a Riot going on, right, by Sly mm-hmm. and the Family Stone, a review I read said, um, this is, the scary thing about this album is that it takes, you know, doing drugs, right, and makes it like seductive in a way that you want to be part of it, even though you shouldn't, right? Like there's an ominousness, but you still mm-hmm. get invited in. It, And I feel like that's where this is with like depression and sort of isolation and like a nihilistic feel. Because while this album is very cold and industrial, it's not uninviting either, which is the interesting yeah. thing about it. It's got like that Krautrock thing with the metronomic... Um, sounds at times and repetition the electronic drums are in this um there's also a lot of space and i'm glad that was mentioned in the bio because there's a there's a lot of space in this album like in between that you can project stuff into Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because it's a tight album but it's a tight album where the space is built into the tightness which almost sounds oxymoronic but um so in that way it feels a lot like like uh like can and craft work at times because of um, that that element of it. It's certainly post-punk as well. It fits nicely yeah. in the late 70s for sure and of the time. Like That's absolutely why I think, you know, even though it sounds different than, say, the Buzzcocks or, um, you know, the Sex Pistols of the early punk or the Clash, it, it definitely – we're getting into that post-punk now, which is – Sort of like what I was listening to that Wire album I talked about. Certainly the Public Image Limited stuff. Um, we're getting into that more industrial sound, the synthetic sound. Um, I but I really like this album. There's just something about this album that that called me in. While I couldn't directly the the sort of the um, the relentlessness of the bleak outlook is not something that I relate to personally. But there's bits and pieces of that feeling that you can throw yourself into at any different song and kind of um, like get in. And like Josh said, like in the right mood, like it would connect quite a bit. Uh, But my, my big takeaway from this was um, how ahead of the, ahead of its time to some degree it was and how much of a, how much of a template for like the eighties and parts of the night, like certainly the eighties joy division was because I mean, maybe like as we go on the journey guys, like, I, you know, I'll call back to it and say, Hey, are you hearing it? But everything from new, you know, new romantic to synth pop. I mean, these guys, literally everybody, but Ian Curtis, right. Becomes new order. Yep. If I remember yeah. correctly. Right. Yes. And new, mm-hmm. I mean, new order certainly has a lot and they have a sort of, uh, uh, a very, industrial feel to them as well and and when you think about like what's coming down the pike for us right with you know depeche mode and new order like we said soft cell and stuff like that um this really is the beginning of that even even goth which we haven't talked about by the way there's a lot of there's a lot of early cure sound in this album as well oh yeah like if you listen to the first couple cure albums that that's a cousin to this and certainly the the grim tones and you know, speaking candidly about your mental health. Um, in the the placement of She's Lost Control in the middle of this album is such an interesting placement um, because it really does serve as, like, the bellwether of the album, like, stuck right in the middle. And uh, I, as I was hearing that song, I knew a little bit about Ian Curtis's um, epilepsy. And so even though he's singing about it about a female, I was curious. I was like, is this a proxy? And turns out 
that he, I guess he worked at an employment agency. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman that would come in at, right around the time he was realizing about epilepsy, right? He, this woman had epilepsy. And a couple of times she had like epileptic fits, right? Or seizures while he was there. And he's not thinking much of it because she stops coming in. So he thinks she um, must have gotten a, a, a job, right? And he finds out later, no, actually, unfortunately, she had an epileptic seizure in her sleep and choked to death. And that's what that song's about, like that feeling of not having control. And, and it kind of led to kind of a bleak story where Ian Curtis and his wife would stay up at night so that Ian Curtis could have the seizure or come close to it so that he wouldn't have to worry about it coming when he was asleep. Mm -hmm. um, and just when you, you hear it in that context, um, like it really does, you know, it's like that thing where you step out, but it's really about you and to some degree it adds layers to it. Like when you're watching your own narrative, but through someone else, like it's particularly, I think, jarring. And yeah, I mean, you're not gonna necessarily feel good after this album at all, but I think it's, um, I think to write it off though, and, and so I feel like to some degree it's a, dis, it's a disservice to Joy Division that they're kind of like, well, there's that band. And then Ian Curtis died at like 22 or 23 years old, right? And then they ended and then they became New Order. but. Um, there's more to them than that, you know, and unfortunately, I think they're always going to sort of be short sketched in that. But um, I think my takeaway from this is how much as an album to finish the 70s, how fitting this album was, because th this is the 80s yeah. coming at us. It really is. That That's my last takeaway. Like, boy. You can't see the 80s coming in any album we've listened to more than this album, I would yeah. say. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on this, John. I love this record. Um, I thought this was a really fantastic way to end as well. This is not that we haven't heard anything like this up until this point. Um, this absolutely does not sound like a 70s record. This sounds like so much of the music that I, you know, um, got into when I was in college and start listening, you know, more of the indie rock and stuff that, that I listened to in the 2000s, even stuff today. Um, this is this is like groundbreaking stuff that just laid the path for so much of the music that I really, you know, really like the kind of that 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 somber tone. Um, I, I again, I, I'm not paying it. I, obviously, I knew that the lyrics were sad and stuff like that, but I didn't pay again. I'm not paying too much attention to what's being said, but just the 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 um how much this sounds like like a lot of the bands that you said like the cure and this is what i always remembered was interpol was always a band that was kind of said well they're trying oh to yeah division, that's a great you know? yeah like that's, that's a great and mm -hmm. and that's and you absolutely hear i don't know the interpol lead singer's voice but he's definitely channeling ian curtis on when on his vocal styles and i love that band and i love a lot of the stuff that that they have done and other bands like them um, paul banks right is that his name yeah Liverpool's that sounds right singer? paul yeah. banks yep and um but there's but you know, under with 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 all the uh, you know the sad nature of this, the press depressing nature of the sound here, you, there's still some really great melodies. This is there's right. parts of this album that are very danceable. This is like yeah. this upbeat dance. The bass is so great in yeah. this, like just the bass lines that he's playing, and then in a song like um, "New Dawn Fades," mm -hmm. how the bass is kind of like going. Um, it's like a downward it's a descending kind of uh, melodic piece that he's playing. And then the guitar comes in and it kind of goes ascending. And the way that the two of those play in together is just so freaking good. And I didn't realize this, but um, I, I, I found this interesting. Uh, Moby did a remix of this back in like the mid nineties. 
and it was actually used in the film Heat, which was this the scene where um, Al Pacino is following yes. uh, Robert yes, De Niro was. in yep. the car, oh. and it's like it sound it sound, and I always remember really like I'm like that's such a cool sounding song, and it's freaking it's it's New Dawn fades, just mm-hmm. like done much more of a in a Moby type way, I guess you could say. So I thought that that was an interesting um, piece of uh, trivia, but it starts off great. Disorder is a great opening track, just very mm-hmm. upbeat, and I kind of there's a lot of like and this channels not only what's happening what's going to kind of happen in the 80s and 90s and beyond but this is also very much rooted in some parts in like 50s and 60s kind of like you know um rock and roll as well um, those phil you know. specter drums like the phil specter drums yeah like the echoey drums and just but just like the kind of you just listen to that that bass line in disorder you could you could see that being kind of like a bouncy 60s type melody that's mm. happening there and um I just I think the production is great. I think it's really interesting that the band was, you know, half the members of the band were upset with the way that the album sounded because it wasn't like like, you know, what they played live. Um, but it's it, but they've 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 later on credited him with just saying that that's that's the reason we sounded that way is because of the the producer. So it's interesting that a producer can make can be that influential in the overall sound of a band. Um so I thought that that story was kind of interesting as well. So um but then there's songs like later towards the end stuff like Wilder, uh, Wilderness and Interzone that are kind of more they're they're a little bit more uh I would say maybe upbeat rock songs. They're kind of a little bit more traditional rock songs, more um guitars that are kind of um being strummed rather than like the staccato nature because that's another part of this that's a lot of the guitar and the bass is very it's very staccato like um so they kind of do let the guitars breathe a little bit more in some of the latter mm-hmm. songs but uh, it's this is fantastic i i was really i didn't i don't i might have heard pieces of these songs before um but i nothing really jumped out as being like oh yeah that's the song but um, this was just something the more I listened to it, the more I liked it. And I it just, it's so reminiscent. It's another one of those bands that I'm just, there's so many other bands I'm thinking of, but it's almost like a hodgepodge of things. It's yeah. not like, it's definitely this, it's definitely that. It's like, this is the future. Um, as much as any at record that we've heard, um, you know, and uh, it's just, it's really well done. So I was, I'm a big fan of this album. Well, and then even something like Day of the Lords is like a pixie, you know, that like heavy, like, yeah. duh, 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 you know, that, that yeah. dirge like guitar drop that like you hear like create itself, like I said, in like the pixies or Nirvana, yes. but also like Echo and the Bunny Men, yeah, like have that yes, sound. Yes, and, yeah. and they do, yeah. they all do it, the, the thing, right? But they do it in their own ways. But to some degree, it's all a callback. The Joy Division, it really and it's is, kind, yeah. yeah, and it's it's really as as you said, Matt, as you're listening to this album, you're like, holy shit, this is this is '80s indie rock all over the place, like every bit and piece of it, like resurfaces, and and once again, like many of the great albums we've talked about, it's also callbacks to stuff that came before, you know, mm-hmm. whether like you said, '50s, '60s rock, um, the the German rock, and and yeah, parts yeah. of that. Um, the the elements of what punk was, and and that was there, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, also, the Doors, by yes, the way. I yeah. heard Jim. I heard Jim yeah. Morrison. And Ian Curtis was a big delivery. Jim Morrison guy, yeah. both stylistically and also. That's so funny. Live fast, die young. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, yeah on, absolutely. On yeah. Day of the Lords, especially, which is the second track, I noted that he sounds like Jim Morrison. <laughs> Yeah. And that was intentional, yeah. by the way, because yeah. that was a kind of a hero for him. Yeah, mm. so. Yeah, I definitely i I don't want to feel like I'm down on this album because I did like it. It was just kind of 
different. And I, I didn't make the connection to the 80s stuff in the way that you guys did. I just, I, I don't know, I just kind of zoomed zoomed in and focused in on kind of the lyrics and the feel of it more as, as what it's, I was taking away from it. Yeah. yeah, and I would agree. Like, I think when I first listened to this, the first one or two times, I was like, geez. Like, I had a similar reaction to what you were saying, Josh, and this is just bleak. It's just very... Mm-hmm. But um, once I got kind of past that and I just really started listening to the music itself and... I, I just, yeah, I just, it really, I, I really, um, really felt this record. And I, and it's also kind of just reminded me that like, I kind of do like, you know, um, music that's a little bit, that's either sad or morose or like melancholy or, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like the minor key stuff that the heavier stuff like that, yeah. it's just, it's, it, it's, it's so much more interesting to me. I don't want to say like it resonates with me because it's not like I don't feel, I'm certainly not a depressing person. And actually my wife is like, why do you like this depressing music? You're such a <laughs> happy guy. Like, and I'm like, I don't know. It's just, it's like, it's the yin and the yang kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. this, this type of music is definitely going to, I don't know, I, I'm going to gravitate more towards this than the, the, even though I love the poppy stuff, but there's something about this that, that I find a little bit more interesting. And, um, edgy and uh this was this had it all over the place this was just great from start to finish yeah it's um josh i would strongly recommend that after we do the 80s you go back and listen to this Mm. again and i'm curious to see once you get exposed to like stuff that might be new to your palate and i'm not going to sit here and claim matt and i are like genius experts but i think maybe the fact that matt and i might have a little bit more grounding in some of the 80s stuff you know maybe from being a little older or stuff like that i be will be curious once you hear the wide range of the 80s to go back and hear this and see what your thoughts are. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. Yeah, it is a vibe, as we've said. And yeah. the vibe is intense. And like Matt said, you kind of have to listen to it once or twice to clean your palate a little bit. But I'm like you, Matt. I I don't connect to certain types of sad songs, right, that are a little bit more trite. I, I kind of go more into sad songs that are about the human condition or existential stuff than I do about like individual relationships or personal narratives, you know, stuff. Mm. And I'm not saying I can't connect there, you know, but I, there's something about that existential when people write about the dark or the, um, you know, the uneasy or the uncomfortable or the fear, you know, that it does, there's a, there's a profoundness to it that, um, if you're in the right headspace in particular, it can be almost like um, affirming in a weird way. I would say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, mm-hmm. I know exactly what you're saying. I, I yeah. agree. It's just, it's, it's, there's something about it that just, it adds such a different layer to, it's a different way of listening to music, I think sometimes. And it just, I think in some ways it's, it's, it can be more satisfying um, or at least it's nice to mix it up. Right. It's, it's nice yeah. to kind of have this along with other stuff. It's not like the only thing I want to listen to, but. And this um, is a good example, Matt, where you, while the lyrics certainly were helpful as a thing, I don't even think you needed the lyrics, Matt, because like basically the lyrics (laughs) were scoring the sound to some degree. And like you didn't need the lyrics to know the general idea of sonically what it sounds like. Whereas like Neil Young, the album we covered earlier, there's differences at times. It's like, okay, the lyrics can inform parts of this that might slip by on this one. I don't know. You know, I don't know what you'd miss from not knowing the specifics. Yeah, it's all uh, amalgamation. Well, it's of, not like the Smiths, right? Yeah. Like the Morrissey's doing depressing lyrics, but it's all under this, like, you know. Well, and there's Joy Division then in them. Yeah. yeah. 
Certainly yeah. a little bit of how Johnny Marr plays has, uh, I mean, it's janglier, but there's but elements of but how it's he more plays. Pop, yeah. But it's more poppy. It's much more yeah. commercial friendly, if you will, you know, happier sounding melodically and musically. And then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, wow, that's kind of messed. <laughs> well, their, their influences you know? are much more traditionally Western. Whereas this, like I said, pulls a little bit from, and, and, and it's much more, um, this is much more electronic as well in yeah. the sense it's synthetic at times. And then of course they follow that, to an even more end that way with new order um yep. than even this yeah 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 it's it's um well yeah i'll i'll leave it at that i mean it it seems like they 80s bands kind of make it more dancey in a way than this is initially um or, or not all of like them like you said no from not like they, Bauhaus and stuff. <laughs> they oh, sure. go like new, new yeah. order and cure and things like but that. Don't say. miss. Don't be mistaken. There's this. I to me, I found plenty of danceable stuff. I was about to say I found enough. it pretty. Yeah. It's that's yeah. why I said it's seductive. You know what I yeah. mean? Because there's elements that if you're not quite paying attention, you can get sucked into another narrative, and that's Just why I said it's like bass, that Sly and like Stone it, album. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that was a really good comparison. I totally forgot about that. But yeah, it's like kind of a. Uh, it's I, I'm it's weird that I, I like this and was drawn in so much to this album that's so depressing at the same time, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. Hi everyone, editor Josh here. Bet you were expecting to hear the top ten lists, but because the episode went so long, we decided to split it up into two parts. So you'll have to wait until next week to hear the year-end wrap-up with our superlatives and the top ten list. Don't worry, it'll be worth the wait. Thanks for listening to the Combing the Stacks podcast. We're now available to be liked and followed on 10 unique platforms, including Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Feedback is welcome at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at the handle at combingthe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks.